Vintage Stories podcast is sponsored by Kari Wine. That's uh, found at kariwine.com. They are winemaking innovators. Australia, New Zealand, you can get them both. And they are the guys to call if you have issues with stuck ferments, stinky ferments, um, unhealthy ferments. You want to run a trial? Give these guys a buzz for the best. Kariwine.com. Hey guys, I'm going to try something different for the rest of the season, basically. Uh, the next seven episodes were recorded down in Blenheim uh, about two weeks ago for the Organic and Biodynamic Wine Conference put on by Organic Wine New Zealand. First day I sat down next to Emma Jenkins. I asked her if she was speaking at over the next three days. She was not, so I thought, well, good opportunity to sit down and have a chat. So this is what we did. I, uh, I am going to speak a little longer after our chat to lead into the next episodes. I hope you guys listen to that as well. This is Emma Jenkins. do that much editing so um yeah who are you <laughs> master of wine yeah, existential questions first up yeah. the deep questions yeah yeah um so emma <laughs> jenkins yeah yeah so i am based in taupo and i um, write about wine I, for some reason i thought you were based on the south island no right? oh, no okay. yeah so no not far from you at all actually just over the hill that's great yeah yeah and um write about wine teach judge consultancy work just a mixture of sort of things which coming off a hot topic of judging from the last panel here <laughs> so just to give you an idea we i will be uh i'll do an intro to this and i, I will let people know that we are at the organic and biodynamic uh, wine conference so um and you're here just pure curiosity or you, you don't have to speak but now i forced you to speak so yeah sorry about i know that. i was hoping to dodge that bullet i think everyone's heard enough of me um yeah i was actually i'm a, I'm a guest of organic wine growers new zealand which is i was really grateful for i came um to the first conference and enjoyed it immensely i thought um it's. Um, I think they did a brilliant job of um, having a really excellent range of speakers, and they seem to have built upon that. I unfortunately missed the one two years ago because I was out of the country at the time, so I was super yeah thrilled to get an invitation to this. And I think it's uh, to me it's an area I feel really passionate about at a personal level, and have done as a long time, just as a gardener. Uh, yeah, but, sure. but in wine, I think that um, anything that gives you a greater connection to your land and puts you out in the land more has got to be a good thing in my opinion absolutely uh, and I think that in New Zealand we've got a real opportunity to work on this I think um, you know New Zealand wine growers who I think sometimes um <coughs> 
yeah, kind of. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of. Like, I, I sort would of, just uh, say they play it safe. Yeah, well, the they probably do. Is a good way of sort of putting that. And I mean, I guess there's a variety of reasons that they've kind of done that. But I think they did do a really good thing with the sustainable wine growing pro- um, program, and that it's kind of got everybody to a really good base level. And then there's been a springboard from there. But to me, it feels as though we have an amazing opportunity with organic um, and biodynamically grown wine in a country in an industry that's relatively small to really, um, I guess, continue. Well, to, to probably be you know, quite revolutionary in some ways if we could really continue to use that sustainable base to push people out of their comfort zones and get more into, you know, an organic management system. I think there's really compelling evidence environmentally for why we want to do that. You know, if you want to get from a market point of view, there's a lot of evidence that consumers are looking for that. And I think we're well placed to be able to do that. Yeah, I think it is about get, you know, people out of their comfort zone. We're watching that happen in Hawke's Bay where there's a lot of older established vineyards and, they know the truth. You know, you really yeah. talk to them, they know, but they're, oh, do they, how do you make the leap? What do you do? You know, and yeah, oh, there's yeah. a lot of growers and small growers and they're scared and they mm. don't have the education. And and then, of course, uh, you know, there is the sort of consumer marketing side of it. And uh, will it be worth it? And can That's right, you know, yeah. And, you know, it's easy for me to say I don't have any skin in the production game for me to say, yeah, mm. you should all go organic. And you can absolutely understand why people have trepidation. You know, it's a highly competitive industry. It's not always a profitable industry. You know, it's, it's tough and you're at the mercy of the weather and things like that as well. Yeah, I think but it's about that leap. Everybody's worried that's right. like, oh, well, yeah. that first year I'm not going to get a big crop and all that. Totally. And mm. you heard, um, I think it was Richard was the first speaker um, who, said that about you know the the pinch point they seem to have is about three years into certification where people say oh you know maybe my yields have dropped and I'm not getting as much you know I'm not I'm not seeing the value added kind of component but it is wine's already been a long term kind of a game hasn't it so uh, but I think giving that information a lot of that information is out there that we've had enough people now who've been doing this for a long time not just small producers but yeah. some larger ones as well so we've always been I think a really good collaborative industry so being able to talk to your neighbours see what they're doing I mean Stu Dudley here and um, who's the villa but a culture guy down here was saying that I think it was I think it was the 18 vintage not 17 but obviously two quite challenging years and he said that what surprised them was their organic blocks came through strongest and that was George something that their neighbors said the same to yeah me. were yeah. really interested to see as well so I, I think you know it's kind of build it and they will come when people see yep. this actually happening functioning people still growing wine you know profitably making you know really nice products I suppose that's the exciting thing about being here is like uh, you know I came Obviously, because I, I deal with mostly growers, but I'm passionate about. It. I'm trying to convince them. Yeah. But I have to fight that fight all the day, uh, every day, and sort of say, "Trust me, it's going to work." But yeah. You go do all the work. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. <laughs> but you know. um, no, it's it's sort of cool to be here and and have that feeling of like we're kind of ahead of the curve. Yeah. You know, in that many ways. Yeah. But in the, let's see, 20 minutes we probably have. Uh, I want to kind of back up a bit and just get to know your story a little bit i know we're you know right. typically these gonna go for uh 45 minutes an hour maybe right. we could do it again now that wow. i know you're in topo yeah uh, and we could tell the long story or we yeah. could uh maybe have somebody else sit in and talk something uh longer but you have my uh, kids heckling in the background yeah sure <laughs> we'll do it in the middle of the day yeah. that's the best time to do it when everybody's not yeah, a, when yeah. everybody's away you just get the dogs they seem to be my fan club, so we're all right. um 
You've always lived in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. So born and bred. So I lived in Christchurch until just before five, I was age five, and then I um, moved up to Taupo with family and lived there, well, more or less ever since, I suppose. Um, it's um, I went to university in Dunedin, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't expect to come back and live in Taupo, but it just sort of happened <laughs> yep. that I got a job, and um, my boyfriend at the time, is my husband now, um, he had one too, and it's a great place to live. We have yeah, a, no, I love Taupo. a fantastic nice. lifestyle there. Yeah, uh, I and I travel a heap, so it's yes. good to have nice Hop on a little flight. And, uh, totally, yeah. Well, yeah. and I like coming back to somewhere where it's just cruisy and relaxed. You know, we have no neighbours. We have a beautiful view. It's peaceful. There's no traffic. So how do you go from you had a job to – because I will say this. You, you came through with uh, some MWs on the trip through Hawke's Bay, and I yeah. did get a – you know, it was really cruisy sort of – session we had with them in Havelock North mm. uh, at a little drink session kind of thing and a lot of them I talked to it kind of came at it from a different thing whereas maybe you know master of viticulture or some right. yeah. you kind of know where the psalms they're going to yeah. come out of restaurants and MWs are like oh it was an insurance and you know and then I just started studying so much and I got and then they kind of go that way but you're you're also a wine writer too yeah so so a master and a master of wine is obviously a trade well started as a trade qualification so in terms of the British wine trade that was something that they you know in the 1960s it started up in that way and then it's broadened out um, obviously internationally and people from you know all sorts of different backgrounds so there were winemakers and viticulture people there were certainly a lot of people working in the trade but you do get people who have I suppose career shifts and you, you see that in winemaking as well you absolutely know, you yeah. people who are you know this and that and everything I mean I have um I have well I went to university to do medical sciences so and I hold a degree an honours degree in anatomy so it's an obvious path into wine does that um, affect your tasting notes you know <laughs> I don't know I'm, I'm well aware of what happens to your liver if you, yeah, if you yeah. drink too much but um I, I'd always ha- had an interest in wine it would never have occurred to me that you could work in wine I mean that was not on my radar or my parents drank wine and stuff like that but yeah, I, that was not something I thought about working in. Um, but when I finished my um, bachelor's degree, I was going to go and do postgraduate stuff at Auckland University, and I didn't really want to move to Auckland. Um, it didn't hold much appeal. So I was kind of thinking, oh, what am I going to do um, to, you know, what can I do for a PhD done in Otago um, in a slightly sort of different side of things? Um, and my yeah boyfriend, he was finishing off his master's, so we were kind of six months out of sync, and so I got a job working in a wine shop in Taupo, which belonged to my parents' friends, Scenic Cellars, which is ah, just an amazing place. Now yeah. it's starting to yeah. come together. <laughs> it makes sense. I, this yeah. is all st- okay. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, this is incredible. You know, there's just so much more to wine than I ever knew, and it really yeah. captured my interest. So I kind of thought, well, I'll take a year off, and I'll figure out what I'm going to do back down in Otago, and I'll earn a bit of money and have a bit of fun, and I n- never went back. It's so, so funny you say that because you have to be the third or fourth person I've talked to and I'm probably I'm up to I think you might be number 60 podcast 60 uh that there's been a lot of people who got that wine shop and then it was like I was hooked and I had a mentor or somebody there was like no this is the way it works Uh, it was an incredible place I mean I'm grateful that I worked there for a lot of reasons it taught me a lot of things but I was also kind of there I suppose in its heyday because the shop by then was really well established um Peter Taylor who was the original owner was um (laughs) he's a real hard case quite a 
idiosyncratic person in a lot of ways, not always an easy person to work for because he had really kind of, yeah, he demanded a lot of himself, but also you, you know, but it it was great. But he was phenomenally generous. Um, You know, he probably embodied that spirit of wine that we all love, that he he loved wine, he loved to share it. And so he would just open these amazing bottles for us after, you know, for staff drinks and things like that. And I tasted, you know, just some of the great wines of the world. And it was a treasure trove. So, you know, you could go and have, there were like five different vintages of Chateau Chalon and there's, (laughs) you know, different wines from Banyuls. And there was just all sorts of stuff, as well as, you know, Dias, you know, you, you name it, it was there. And so if you wanted to learn, it was great. And he was always someone who would, if he saw your interest like I started on the kind of the shop floor but I'm not a natural salesperson and I found it a bit boring when there was nobody there and stuff so he said well do you want to go up into the office and then you can start doing the tastings running the tastings and you can do a bit of the education or that sort of sort of morphed into that sort of side of things which was great um and I did a diploma in um enology and viticulture at EIT at the same time yeah because I kind of thought as a sciencey person you know I'll go into that side of it and while I was doing that, Bob Campbell used to come through because Peter was really big on, you know, educating his staff and stuff and he'd get Bob to come down and do things. And Bob said to me, oh, if you want to learn more about wine, you should do your MW. And I oh, got, just like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. <laughs> you know, this is what an idea I was because I went and looked online and I thought, ah, yeah, that looks really cool. That looks interesting. I'll do that. And I knew that it was kind of difficult, but I thought, well, it's all right. If I don't pass, I'll have learned something, which I still think is true, you know. Um, fortunately I did pass <laughs> yeah. but um, I realised too very quickly that being at Scenic Cellars was just the most brilliant place to study for that because you know I had all these wines yeah. at my fingertips and um, just yeah could dive in and it was kind of just like a treasure trove of wine to explore and learn about. So how long you know from beginning end to say master of wine typically right. and yeah. then you know obviously some people are quicker. Well when I started there were no time limits or anything on the program so I started working at Scenic Cellars the very last day of 1999 um, and I left there halfway through 2006 I think after Peter had sold and the business kind of changed a bit yeah. uh, but I started doing my MW I think I I can't remember if it was 04 or 05 now um, but at that time you could just go on the program and just you know, when you felt ready, you sat the exam. And I was like, you know, I just used it as a great excuse to buy wine and sure. buy all wine magazines and mucked around and never did any kind of serious study. But I had my first child in 2007. And at that point, I took a year off the program and I just missed it so badly. And so I thought, right, I need to actually have a crack at this. So I went kind of to the seminar that year, which was in January. And the exam was in June. And I got all my ring binders out, <laughs> which had nothing in them. <laughs> and I kind of sat down, divided up the number of weeks I had until the exam and thought, okay, this is the kind of the syllabus I need to keep, you know, learn stuff um, in a more structured fashion, and then had a crack at the exam, and I passed the theory, so um, that was 2009. So there's the theory and... And then there's the practical, yeah, yeah. so the following year I went back and passed the practical, so, and then the year after that I did my dissertation. So I had a relatively streamlined kind of path. Uh, your dissertation on... On, um, is there a case for subregionality in Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? Ah, so, well, some of that's come, but there's basically two... Or how many sub three sub regions? Yeah, yeah. Wairau Valley, the Aotearoa, and Southern Valleys. Southern Valleys. Yeah, I mean you can kind of split them up incrementally as well if you want into smaller, but those are the kind of the three main sub regions. So, yeah. yeah, So the short answer to the my dissertation was yes, Yes. (laughs) but I obviously wrote ten thousand words (laughs) to get to that point. Yeah, which was kind of hard. Yeah, it was quite hard work, but it was very very interesting, and it's been interesting to see how subregionality is developing in New Zealand, not just Marlborough, but the wider, well, you know. And Hawke's Bay. And totally, yeah. 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 I mean, it's a that. valid concept, even if, say, even if consumers weren't interested, which most of them aren't. No. But it's something that I think any quality-focused region has to um, pursue. Yeah, it's anyway. almost better for us, and there's 
whether they like to admit or not, healthy competition. Yeah. You know, I'm always, I, and I'm the guy who, and there are other wineries like this too, but I'm one of the guys who, you know, I make some Bridge Pa wine and right. I make some Give a Growls wine. It's funny that behind closed doors, oh, I don't know about those Give a Growls yeah. guys. I don't know about those. Oh, the Bridge Pa, whatever, you know. Totally, and yeah. So, um, yeah. But, it's, but that is actually really good for us to be competitive and, yeah. and uh, you know and when we were we had the MW group in Hawke's Bay one of the things we looked at was Syrah and the different subregions and the impact and you know there, there absolutely is a difference which makes sense when you think about the soil and the micro you know macroclimates sure. and things like that that are going on within there and I think it's you know the whole point of wine what we enjoy about wine is its diversity isn't it and the fact that there are all these elements to explore so I think you know, why would you not want to tease that out? It's really interesting, isn't Definitely. it? It sustains you each year. You know, you've got different weather patterns that come through, but you also, I think in New Zealand, you've got that flexibility and freedom to discover fruit from other regions. You're not, you know, restricted necessarily in the way that you can be in old world countries. Yeah, you might get a Martin Just very different dynamics like happening that. in yeah. the industry, yeah. Oh, well, this leads me to a very timely question, at least in my mind, because last week we had the ABS tasting uh, for all the Gibbler Gravels wine growers. Right, so yeah. a lot of... <laughs> Merlot, I had my Malbec in there, uh, Cab Sav dominant, Merlot dominant, and Syrah, of course. Yeah. So towards the end, um, one of the good questions was being posed by uh, Hugh from Vital, uh, but also Gordon and Jenny Dobson as well, Gordon, uh, was kind of like, as far as Syrah goes, okay, it's going pretty good, but what are we doing wrong as far as, you know, that, you know, that Compared to, say, Pinot Noir in New Zealand, which, right. you know, uh, is definitely, you know, I, I, I can speak from personal experience. I sell a lot more Pinot for a good price in New Zealand than I do anywhere else. Yeah. And there's a perception of Pinot Noir in New Zealand, whether you like it or not, that there's a price and good Pinot at this price. And we and it hasn't quite happened in the consumer level for yeah. Syrah. It's a bit of a secret almost yeah. still, even in New Zealand. Yeah. You know, forget about the export markets. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think, it, oh, to my mind, it's probably a volume thing. Yeah, well, that was spoken of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there are mass. just so few of those wines around the place. But, you know, people who do encounter them, um, both consumers, I think, and, you know, kind of people working in the trade are very impressed by the quality that's there. And that, that came through with that group, you know, that, that came down through in February. They were like, holy shit, yeah, <laughs> we had yeah. no idea you guys are making these wines and yeah. why aren't we seeing them? Yeah. But then when you look at those volumes, that's understandable. But yeah, and I, I mean, I guess the New Zealand market's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because, I mean, I suppose, you know, pin Pinot's delicious and it's easy to drink and there's a lot of really good wines and people are familiar with that. I guess in people's minds in New Zealand, maybe they still have the Aussie Shiraz kind of side of things. That's quite well known. And I guess if people are wanting a red that's not Pinot, maybe that's where they move. So for them to find the New Zealand ones and then find ones that they like and then at the price that they want, you know, I think that message is getting out there. Certainly yeah, I write, you know, about Syrah mm. and put those wines in the magazines and stuff I write for and it's a grape I think, you know, has a, has clearly a good future. So Yeah, if we can just get through the growing part. <laughs> Yeah. In the vineyard. Yeah, well, but I mean, there'd be a lot of people I'd say pretty happy with the you know vintage you guys have just had as well. And pretty awesome. The understanding I have from people is that Syrah may end up being a more reliable performer um, as a red in Hawke's Bay just because of the ripening windows and things like that. But it's hard to know, isn't it? Because vintages seem to be, the weather patterns seem to be changing so much at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, granted, say like 2017 was tough for Merlot and Syrah. Um, I would say 
tonnage wise that critical mass merlot is certainly a lot easier yeah. not only because it's a lot planted but you can crop a little higher and still make some yeah. pretty awesome wine and uh but you know the perception of the market of merlot is not the hottest thing at the moment <laughs> so I know. Oh, that seems crazy i mean everyone talks about that sideways thing and you do wonder but it seems crazy doesn't it how people can just get swayed by stuff like that when there's yeah. no basis in reality there, for there, it, but it's a bit of that but i think it's very much my parents drank Merlot. Right, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, whereas maybe my parents drank Cabernet, but Cabernet Sauvignon's just sort of has this Cabernet is king and powerful yeah, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. That hasn't really gone away. I mean, we don't make heaps no. of Cabernet. But, but you know, the, the flip side of that is I kind of, when you think about, say, um, in terms of going back to Syrah, there are very few places that make really compelling Syrah around mm. the world and that are known for that. Now, I mean, Australia's Shiraz kind of style, obviously there's quite a bit of variation within that. I mean, people think they're massive, big, you know, jammy reds, but that's not necessarily the case with all of them, obviously. A lot of diverse climates and things in Australia. But by and large, New Zealand's style is very far from the Australian style, closer to the French style, but they are the kind of, I suppose, I like to think that New Zealand Syrah is, you know, kind of one of the three kind of, styles of of Syrah Shiraz that's being made around the world that consumers can find you know terroir with expressed within and and we have that just beautiful freshness and elegance I think in the wines but a different aromatic kind of profile from the French ones again so to me that's a more unique thing I mean there's a lot yeah. of really amazing Cabernet or Merlot based wines grown all around the world exactly, as well so yeah. Syrahs are more I suppose if you want a more unique kind of proposition I mean again I'm, I'm not a marketer that's probably no but I, I think the we've seen uh, you know the trade particularly respond in that way, and one of the um, things that came out of that conversation, while yeah, Syrah has been tough, and we can do more, and we need to plant more, and all that, was that the market as it is now has come back into these wines of more freshness, yeah, and that really suits all our wines really yeah, in, yeah. in New Zealand. That's right, um, yeah. And, but, you know, if we're talking about reds from Hawke's Bay, for instance. Yeah. But, um, well, I think you can get that lovely juicy fruit as well, that kind of saturated fruit character, but still with a lot of beautiful acidity and, you know, fine, mm. silky kind of tannins that, that, you know, that's people enjoy drinking. Now, we have to be realistic. You know, I love drinking aged wine and aged Bordeaux and things like that, but... You know, most of the time you don't sell your wine, do you? you? You unfortunately you want something that you're gonna People drink within gonna a few years it. of vintage at most, kind of side of things. If that, so I think Syrah. You know, you can make wines that are really expressive, delicious, lovely wines that drinking now. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So. Where are you traveling to next? You're just back from Switzerland? Yeah, I am. That was um, really fascinating to learn about Swiss wine. That's and you did a, a judging, it, I much, did. much to the chagrin of some, uh, one of our speakers upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Sometimes I think, you know, if you're going to criticize things, you probably need to get in there and really have a look at what you're criticizing to yeah, understand yeah. that. Well, I mean, it's, it's fair enough to have those It's opinions. a broad stroke, I'll say yeah, that. Yeah, and I'm not going to, you know, say that wine, I mean, wine shows are, are what they are. They deliver a certain kind of a thing. But some of the, uh, you know, kind of comments that were being made up there, I thought were probably a little bit unfounded in fact. So mm. anyway, but um, yeah, I, I don't do a huge amount of judging, to be perfectly honest. It's very time consuming. Most of the time you don't get paid for it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no. but the Switzerland one was great because it gave me an opportunity to be to go to Switzerland. In Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> totally, eat loads yeah, of cheese. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Got used yeah. to having five different cheeses for breakfast. So, wow. Um, yeah, but I'm off. Where am I off to after this? Um, I've got a couple of trips to Australia lined up. I'm going up to China. Um, well, going to Central. It's always yeah, a mix of stuff. I, it's really good. I sort of asked that because, um, you know, I think someone who preaches the, I don't know, wine education, maybe the 
the side of the industry that isn't production yeah um would be like Cameron Douglas when he talks about like what it's like to become a master psalm and yeah. the opportunities out there and I think much of the same the way I would have been 15 years ago where I would have thought I can't go make wine in New Zealand yeah. like I don't uh, you know somebody might even probably listeners of this would say like I couldn't become a master of wine and yeah. what the hell would I do if I did it anyway and they totally. don't realize yeah. all the opportunities that open up they do yeah I mean it, it undoubtedly gives you a foot in the door I mean I've never actually gone out and solicited for work I mean partly that's because I have you know three relatively young children and I'm not actually looking for yeah. <laughs> more things to do in my days most of the time but I think you know you become a known quantity to people in that they kind of understand um, even if they don't understand the exact detail of what an MW is they understand that that's somebody who's kind of thinks about wine and I'm you know, more critical fashion, I suppose, and has a broader view and experience, that sort of side of things. So that gives you an opportunity to do things. And then obviously then you have to hopefully deliver, you know, they don't come away thinking, well, yeah. they're, they're an idiot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it does open a lot of doors. I think for me that that was the value of doing it. I never had any particular career aspirations. It was something I did for my my personal satisfaction I suppose and professional satisfaction and, and improving you know what I knew about wine but it, that's what it's also done is allowed me to continue to learn about wine and speak to people you know people are amazingly generous in this industry it's incredibly humbling how people are generous with their time with their wines information that sort of side of things um, and it's just such a, a pleasure to be able to go around the world and talk to people and, and learn more and I hope that you know, by doing that also I can contribute more to our own industry that I'm quite passionate about by, you know, perhaps different viewpoints or, mm. you know, maybe, you know, have you thought about this aspect, you know, that's something I saw here or doing that sort of side of things. So, yeah, I kind of pinch myself sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, I could have been chopping up dead bodies for the rest and of my I, life. I, and <laughs> going back to, well, to two things. One is that uh, MW thing I saw you in Hawke's Bay, but also going back to the old scenic cellars, there seems to be, you know, one great thing about the industry, which you sort of touched on, is the sense of community. So yeah. I'm sure by becoming an MW, you got to meet a lot of people. Absolutely. Not, you know, yeah. on all sides of the industry, but also you guys kind of have your yeah. your international group that is <laughs> the cast the, of Fraggle Rock. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 It is, and I mean, you know that you can. You, you know, there was somebody who sent me a really technical question about the Maillard reaction in Champagne, which I had no clue what the answer was, but I knew somebody who worked in that field and I could ask them for the answer for that. So it is, it's a really interesting resource that you can tap into because most MWs, you know, they recognise you've been through this kind of cathartic process, yeah. you know, that they have and so they'll give you the time of day and some answers and some information. So, so nowadays, is there like steps to sit the exam that you have to do? Or yeah, can, yeah, yeah. So you, there's a first year assessment. So yeah. um, they recognise that you kind of, there has to be a base sort of level of knowledge like you sure. kind of you're encouraged um, strongly to have done WCT diploma level or at least have some sort of you know high level qualification in wine and some experience in wine because otherwise you kind of waste everyone else's time on the sure. program that side of things um, and once you pass the first year assessment then you go into stage one and you must pass your sort of stage one um, sort of exams to go into stage two and then within I think you have to have attempted the exam I think you can be in stage two for like two years and then you must have a crack at the exam and the exams that remains the same you must have passed either the theory or the practical within three attempts one 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 part of that um, and both parts of it within five attempts and then you do your what's I did a dissertation but what's now known as the research paper and so. I think what's uh, I can't remember who just said this to me recently I think it was the psalm up at uh, the farm at Cape Kidnappers, oh, yeah. Bethany, she said, I don't think 
New Zealanders realize how lucky they are that they can actually sit these WSET yeah. courses and tests and everything because her friends back in Europe and America and, and, I, and I'm guessing Asia is the same. Yeah. They're waiting in line for yeah. months and months to That's a year, right. maybe yeah. a year to sit some of this stuff. So yeah. And we've got some really good people um, teaching here. I mean, I'm slightly biased because one of my, my bestie, Jane Skelton, yes. <laughs> is um, diploma Jane. provider and stuff. i got to get her on here one day. I know. Yeah, she's yeah. brilliant. But she is an amazing educator. I mean, I yeah. still learn heaps from Jane and the depth of knowledge that is here. You know, for a small country, we do have some really incredible wine resources and we have a really, you know, generous, connected network of people to talk to. So I, I don't know Jane very well. I've, I've seen her speak a couple of times and I've met her a few times but I just get the feeling that she's not shy about telling you what's really going on no <laughs> no no and you'll often get some information about her underpants and things yeah. too so <laughs> there's no barriers there yeah, there's no not, she's great she's yeah, yeah, she, she's, she's cool. a lot of good fun but she has a, a mind like a steel trap too so um be careful okay <laughs> All right, well, I yeah. think we better go, man. We uh, cool. we just knocked out 26 minutes, so that wow. was pretty good. And uh, maybe my clock's slow and we're running late, but thanks for uh, doing this. Oh, pleasure. It's always great to talk to you, Dan. I appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Um, Emma Jenkins, I didn't give her the introduction that she was due. Uh, she writes for the Australian Women's Weekly, the New Zealand edition, of course. Co-editor of the Independent Wine Monthly, along with another master wine, Jane Skilton, who we discussed in that podcast. She's also heavily involved in the Master Wine Education Program. And you can find her online at www independentwinemonthly.co.nz and yeah she uh she does she's a little bit active on twitter at iwn underscore updates uh and she's on instagram as well you can find her there so yeah check her out thanks again emma that was very cool of her to do that she was the only one who i hadn't reached out to beforehand uh on going into that con uh conference that agreed to do this and um I hadn't asked previously. She just kind of bumped into her, and and that was very cool. And and uh, I kind of wanted to dive into that episode just because that's sort of what happened to me and uh, at this conference, and well, as through sort of thrust that upon uh, Emma as well to just dive into a conversation. And she responded, "Great!" And that was awesome to speak to her. I did want to go back and comment on one thing at the beginning of the episode that I said about being safe. That. Um, you know, riding the sort of conventional slash sustainable or maybe limiting it to sustainable wine growing or sustainable practices in your business and things like that or any kind of farming. Is it is it really just the safe thing or should you be trying to improve? I mean, why are you even listening to this? You know, it's not because... <laughs> Uh, of my journalistic or uh, broadcasting skills or anything like that. I, I fumble and stumble through stuff that I'm trying to say, but uh, it's because you want to listen to these people talk. You want to hear their story. You want to do better. You want to improve. If you have kids, you want your kids to have it better. 
and to learn the right way to live. And, uh, that's, and to be healthy. And, uh, and that's kind of one of the big things I took away from this conference. Not that I didn't believe in any of those things before, but that it just sort of energized and galvanized. So I thought I'd do something different at the end of this episode. And that was to read two pieces out of, uh, grasp the nettle. If you don't have this book and you live in New Zealand particularly, but, uh, you can get this book anywhere in the world. As far as I know, uh, it's called grasp the nettle. It's making biodynamic farming and gardening work. It's by the legendary Peter Proctor, who had a biodynamic school and here in Hawke's Bay. I had the pleasure of having dinner with the guy one night and kind of didn't, I knew who he was and I had read a lot of things by him at that point, but he was really getting up there in age, probably four years before he passed. And, uh, man, what a presence and an interesting guy. And, um, I was pretty, (laughs) pretty awestruck by him without even really knowing he was going to be at the dinner or anything. He just kind of sat down and did his thing and spoke and, uh, hosted us was one of the biggest things that I think I felt very welcome when I was around that guy. And, uh, he's got a great book he wrote with Jillian Cole and a good friend of mine gave it to me. And man, if, even if you have no interest in organics, which I don't know why you wouldn't, uh, pick up this book, read it. I'm sure you can get it at the library. Um, it's a great read. It's fascinating. There's lots of science and things in there that you probably had in yourself uh, intuitively that you didn't know about. And you go, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't really think of it that way before. But anyway, these are the first two paragraphs of the introduction. And then I'm going to read you a small piece about how to establish a vineyard biodynamically. But this is two first two paragraphs of the introduction. I apologize if I fumble over the the reading of this. But says, uh, first there's a quote by Goethe, which says, if thou knowest it not, this dying and becoming, thou art a troubled guest across a world a-roaming. So the first two paragraphs say, one of the underlying principles of a biodynamic farming is the developing of life-giving humus out of dead organic material. This biological, biologically active humus is the basis of all living soil. Can you recognize a healthy soil? Can you tell if your plants are healthy? Farmers, sometimes unwittingly, have taken on the responsibility to heal the earth and produce food that heals human beings. But a farmer who walks thoughtfully over the land and harvests crops with reverence produces a different product from one who drives a combine harvester all day with the radio playing. So that's the first two paragraphs. I think, you know, it goes on and on about the history of the movement and, um, gives a great introduction, um, talks about all the preparations and, um, you know, the sort of greater universe about how we're affected, uh, how it affects farming and, and our lives. But he has a whole section on establishing orchards and passion fruit and stone fruit and tamarillo and how to use the preparations and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it's got a small section on how to establish a vineyard and uh, I think it's pretty interesting. I'm just going to read it real quick. It's just a few paragraphs. I hope you guys don't mind. For a new vineyard, you may need to rip the soil before planting. When planting, the new vines incorporate well-matured compost into the planting holes. Dip the plant's roots in a slurry mix of CPP. That's one of the preparations. 
to help root establishment. Apply preparation 500 plus CPP on the land twice in the autumn and twice again in the spring. This you can do every year. During establishment of the new vineyard, grow two successful green crops between the rows in spring and summer and build up the humus. In spring, sow oats, barley, or buckwheat, and vetch. And when grown in late summer, discs in or use a spader to incorporate the green material into the soil. Then in the autumn, sow tick beans or blue lupins together with either oats, rye, corn, or trictacal, which I actually don't know what that is. Then work into the soil in the spring. You may wish to repeat the above sequence of green crop. This will depend on the humus content of the soil. The following spring, sow down permanent sward and herbal lay between the vines. Depending on the soil and the climate, such plants such as lucerne, red clover, coxfoot can grow material, which when cut can provide a useful mulch. The aim of the vineyard is to encourage a deep rooting system to increase and maintain good humus levels which will help to maintain good moisture levels without resorting to extensive irrigation systems. This can be done by applying well-made biodynamic compost at planting time and with annual maintenance dressing of compost at the rate of 5 tons per acre. It is best applied in the autumn after harvest, spreading the compost over the ground and not just around the stem of the grape. Remember, the grape's roots extend throughout all the soil. Well-made, mature biodynamic compost will not increase the soluble nitrogen, which would lead to soft growth fungus and low quality grapes. Also remember that well-made compost will encourage the presence of mycorrhiza fungi, which will, which whose very fine hyphae are part of the food web system that nourishes the grape. In addition, use compost in which rock phosphate has been added to supply phosphorus requirement. Wonder if you need magnesium on the Gibbet gravels. Liquid manure made from seaweed will help to establish and healthy growth of vines and can be used fortnightly on a fortnightly basis. In addition, CPP can be used alternatively with seaweed. CPP can also be used as a spray on the vines after pruning. Mulching with the hay will conserve moisture and reduce irrigation. Make sure hay has no hormonal spray residue. This will distort the growth of the vines. Plant only vines that have been well grown. Check that rootstock of the vines have strong roots, an even round stem, and a healthy bud onion with two strong buds of the scion. A weak plant will always be weak and will not be a good producer of grapes. Now, some people will go, oh, that's biodynamics or hairy-fairy. What's hairy-fairy? Nothing. All that makes sense. Look it up. Look into it. It's a system. You can try it. Um, that sounds, and you can see the effort is all into the soil and the health of the vine, the real health of the vine and the, you know, some real important points in there about making healthy grapes, which is what we basically struggle with every year. We're trying to deal with the mother nature and make sure that the grapes are as healthy as they can when they come in and they taste fresh and lively. One of the analogies that came out from George Meisner, which we'll uh, interview him in a few podcasts, was some wine, some produce, things like that. They taste like, instead of the fresh lettuce that you grab from your garden and you bring in to make a salad, it tastes like the lettuce has been put in the refrigerator. It loses its vibrancy and, um, yeah, that sort of crispness that you get from a great wine. So just keep that in mind. Um, 
while you listen over the next few episodes. And um, yeah, I'm real excited about the next few weeks of people we're talking to. There'll be some short ones in there and uh, we'll keep them quick and moving. Hope you guys enjoy them. Have a good week. Cheers. Thank you.